Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is engineer Steve Jenwick. First of all, let's talk about musicians' labor relations. Musicians, of course, have a union, and it tends to benefit orchestral players more than anything. And one group it really helped recently was Local 802 in New York City, where they were able to negotiate a brand new contract with higher wages, health care, a new 401k. And of course, this is big because it's Broadway musicians mostly. That being said, not all orchestral musicians are doing well, despite having a union. For instance, the Baltimore Symphony musicians have been locked out for a while, and now everybody believes that they're going to lose each about $20,000 because the whole summer season is pretty well shot by now. The governor of Maryland could actually fix all this, but refuses to fund the symphony. So as a result, they're kind of out in the streets or trying to get a new contract, and it's not happening. So how does that affect you and me if we're not orchestral musicians? Many people think that these unions, and we're talking about the AFM and the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild, they're all from another era, and they're not really helping the creator, the musician, the producer of the present, and especially those that are connected to anything online. What's been talked about a lot lately has been a producer's union, but this is mostly rap producers that wanted to do this. Well, one of the reasons why is they're getting screwed in a lot of different ways. One of the ways it doesn't happen in any other except that specific genre is the fact that the record labels are not paying as much for an album done by a producer. And the reason why they're saying, well, it's not really an album, it's a mixtape. So they're giving a thousand bucks or not that much considering the work they put in. Therefore, producers would like to unionize. Well, it's easier said than done, obviously, but this is actually spreading to other parts of the creative community where creators in general online are thinking that perhaps this might be to their benefit as well. So this is something that's really new. It's something that's just starting, but in fact, it may snowball before you know it. As a result, this could be good for everybody who's creating online. I know for musicians, there's a natural aversion to things like unions, but the time may be right for a new one. If you have any questions or comments, you can send in questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. So on the audio front... Focusrite Group is buying Atom Audio. So, of course, Atom makes high-end speakers. Focusrite makes both entry-level and high-end pro audio gear. But Focusrite Group also owns Novation, makes synthesizers, and Amplify, which makes software audio apps. So it seems like there's a space in the line for a speaker company. Now, ironically, Focusrite distributes KRK speakers in the UK. It should be interesting to see how that works out. Of course, there's usually contracts in that, so it might be close to the end of the contract. 
which is why this move was made. Focus Right Group says that Adam will still be independently run. Just because these are audio companies, it doesn't necessarily mean there's a big synergy between them in terms of manufacturing. If you know anything about Focusrite, you know that it was started by Rupert Neve. After he had left his own company, Neve, he began to make modules for Neve consoles. And these then became so popular that he was asked to begin to build consoles as well. So these were very, very high end, and many think it was still the best console ever made or one of the best ever made. They only made 10 of them, I think. And today, of course, we have Focusrite that makes audio interfaces and Focusrite Pro that makes higher-end audio gear as well. So we'll see if there is indeed some synergy between Atom and Focusrite. My guest today is Steve Jenwick, who's worked at Capitol Studios in Hollywood for 25 years. During that time, he's had the opportunity to work with a wide variety of legendary artists, including Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney, Neil Young, Queen, George Harrison, Michael Jackson, and many more. Steve has also been able to work closely with some of the greatest engineers ever, including Al Schmidt and Jeff Emmerich, among many others. He's also worked on the music for the Academy Awards for the last 20 years, including some huge setups that probably couldn't be done anywhere else. After working on a number of high-profile 5.1 surround mixes in the past, Steve is now focusing much of his attention on Dolby Atmos immersive audio mixing with some spectacular results. During the interview, we spoke about the culture of Capitol Studios, what goes on behind the scenes while recording the music for the Academy Awards, lessons learned from legendary engineers, making the transition to immersive audio mixing, and much more. I spoke with Steve live in Studio C of Capitol Studios in Hollywood. Tell me how you started in the business. How I started? Yeah. <laughs> it's a funny story. I was a rotten guitar player. Um, I never really learned how to play. I was an athlete growing up. And, but my friends in high school were in bands and stuff, and I liked hanging out with them, but I was never good enough to be in the band. And pushing road cases around seemed like, and hauling amps seemed like a bad idea, and I saw the sound guy, and I went, well, I can do that. So, so I decided I wanted to be an engineer. Yeah. And um, just started small, you know, helping at gigs, stuff like that. And then ended up not... I went to college for one year. Uh, this isn't for me. I want to. I want to do music. So, but I didn't. I didn't really know a lot at all. I didn't have that experience of being in a band as a kid and recording my band and all that kind of stuff. So I was really learning from scratch. Um, and I found a school, so called the Trevis Institute. <laughs> you know, I used to teach there. You were my teacher. I was. <laughs> you were one of my teachers there. Absolutely. Um, I'm sorry, I don't remember, but <laughs> it's okay. But, but it's a period of my life I tried to black out. Yeah, so. I don't remember a lot about that period anyway, yeah. either. Um, so I started that program, and I was doing great. And there was a guy that sat next. I think it was a year class actually, because it was the morning class. The guy who sat next to me, he got a job at Cherokee as the night runner, mm. and he would come in. So he would work midnight to eight a.m., and then he'd come to class. And one day he came into class, and we were talking. And he said, yeah. I said, how's the studio? Uh, it's not working out. I said, what happened? He goes, oh, I got fired. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I did something stupid. I said, so they're looking for somebody? And he went, yeah. So I literally closed my book and got up and walked out of class and went to Cherokee and got the job. Um, so then I was a night runner, the yeah. midnight to 8 a.m. thing. And um, after about, I think I finished the first semester or whatever, the first year maybe there, 
<clears throat> and realized that I was learning more at the studio than I was in school. Sure. The schools then were not yeah. what they are now. So, um, so I said, well, all right, that's a waste of money. So instead of spending 12 hours at the studio and then going to class, I just spent 18 hours at the studio. And then, you know, the traditional started as a runner, worked my way up to assistant engineer. Um, did that for about three years there. So it was, yeah, the traditional started as a runner, assistant engineer. Yeah. Ended up leaving Cherokee like everybody did at the time. Um, and then I didn't want to work at a studio, so I did a lot of live sound for a bunch of years um, and really enjoyed it, actually. Um, did live sound, clubs, local stuff, nothing too huge. Um, and I was working at a friend's company. We did sound system installations at like clubs and health clubs and stuff like that. That was kind of the day job. And I ran into a friend of mine, Bill Smith. Yeah. Bill and I worked together at Cherokee. And we literally ran into each other at a bar one night. And, oh, what are you doing? How are you doing? He said, and, I, and he had started here at Capitol. And he said, you know, we had a guy quit today. He said, you should come get the job. He said, it's not an assistant job. It's a setup job, but it's totally different. And, and I was like, I don't know if I want to go back to the studio. No, no, this is different. This is Capitol. So that night he talked me into it. So I went home, and in the morning, I kind of updated my resume, and he said, you know, go to the studio. Michael Frondelli ran the place at the oh, time. Oh, yeah, He yeah. said, ask for him. <clears throat> give me your resume. I said, okay, so I came in about noon. I asked for him, and Michael came out kind of confused. And I said, hi, I'm Steve. I'm, you know, I'm a friend of Bill Smith's. He told me you need a guy. Here's my resume. And he kind of took the resume funny. He went, hang on a minute. And I guess he walked down here to the studio to Bill and went, who the hell is this guy? He went, he's good. You need a guy, hire him. And he walked back up and he said, when can you start? And I said, when do you need me to start? And he said, four o'clock. I said, great, I'll see you then. That was 25 years ago. Wow. <laughs> so, so I started here as a setup guy and the setup guys here, it's not just a runner's position. They set up the rooms and handle the mics and all that. Sure. And then that's when, you know, Bill Smith, Leslie Ann Jones, Pete Dell, Charlie Picari were the four engineers. And I just absorbed everything here. You know, suddenly I was working with, you know, Al Schmidt and Phil Ramone and Tommy LaPuma and Quincy Jones. And, you know, all these people were around. And, you know, Bill and I were such good friends and he was Al's assistant. So at the time I would get called in to help run DATS and run the two tracks. Or if it was a big movie project, I would be the guy logging the tapes or whatever. There was a lot more stuff to do like that. Um, so it got to the point where technically I was still on the setup staff, but I was doing sessions every day mm. as either the second or the third engineer. Um, and then at some point somebody left and they just, it, I just kind of stopped doing setup and suddenly I was a, an engineer. Yeah. Um, and then a few years later, Bill decided, Bill had been working with Al and he wasn't on staff here anymore, but he was still working with Al. And he decided it was time for him to go. He had a couple more opportunities. And so he suddenly was not working with Al every day anymore. So he left one day and I literally sat down in the chair like nothing ever happened. And off Al and I went. Yeah. And that's not that he wasn't busy before, but we were really busy for about 15 to 18 years. We were together six days a week. <laughs> like, I mean, I used to say I'd, I'd spend about 90% of my time just with Al. 
Um, That's right around the time Pro Tools came in. Mm -hmm. So suddenly the job changed a little bit because now I wasn't just the assistant, I was the Pro Tools operator. Um, And we were just so busy, we never stopped. It got to the point where I wasn't, where Paula, the studio manager, wasn't giving me my schedule. I was walking up and telling her what we were going to be doing for the next six months. We were booked months in advance. Um, So Ali get a call and go, all right, we're doing another Dinah Crawl record. Okay, great. And then, you know, a month later, after that, Chris Bode's coming back. Or we're going to do a Paul McCartney record. How about that? Okay, yeah, yeah, let's do that. So, you know, we just knew what we were going to do. And it was really fun. You know, we ended up flying around the world doing all kinds of projects and, became really good friends and he's been my biggest influence certainly sure and a great mentor and a great and still is we still work together you know when he works i still work with him whenever i possibly can which i try to make it possible all the time yeah sure um we still travel around doing our mix with the masters and all that kind of stuff too so it's been really great you know al is such a legend and an influence on on so many people that being said you've worked with a lot of different people Mm mm-hmm what makes Al, Al? What makes Al, Al? Um, he's Al. <laughs> yeah. um, a personality and demeanor, first and foremost. He's, he's so calm and collected in the control room. He nev- I won't say he never gets mad. We all get mad. Mm-hmm. You'll never know he get, when he gets mad. You might know afterwards. Um, but, and I should say, when he gets mad, he's fair about it. He mm-hmm. gets mad for a reason. <laughs> He's never been mad at me where he where it wasn't deserved. And the great part about that is he says what he has to say and then it's over yeah. and we move on with it. So, um, but in the control room on the sessions, it's he's calm and cool and he cares about the artist and the music and it's trying to make an environment where everybody's comfortable and he doesn't make a big process out of what we're doing as the engineers um, because it's all about what they're doing on the floor and the musicians yeah. and it's never about him um it's and it's never about the gear and the console and the tape machine and you know oh we have to do that again because the levels weren't right it doesn't matter that stuff i mean it matters but that's our job yeah and our job is to capture what's going on on the floor and if as long as we capture it we're cool and we spend a lot of time being prepared so that when take one happens we can get it yeah. And it's good. And we might have to shift it around a little bit, but um, but it's usable. So you work with them as an assistant for a long time, and, and now you're engineering your own stuff and doing great work. What did you take from him that you use every day? Um, that attitude, yeah. first of all, first and foremost. You mean technically? Yeah. He taught me a way of recording I had never seen before. Because I had, when I started you know, at Cherokee and even here, we were doing a lot of pop, hip-hop, rock albums, stuff like that. Um, When I got here, suddenly we were doing orchestral records and big band records and jazz records. And and it was a different way to record. And I really gravitated towards what he was doing. And then I realized that what he was doing wasn't with the... He wasn't using EQ. And if he used a compressor, he just tapped it. Mm -hmm. And... It was all about the microphone and the placement and the player. And, you know, I remember jokingly one time I was standing at the console. We had a big session going on. I was standing at the console looking at stuff. And he walked in. He said, hey, what are you doing? You know, just busting my balls. And I said, ah, I said, I'm stealing shit from you. And he said, look, if you want to steal shit from me, it's not in here. It's out there. I thought, yep, he's right. 
Yeah. He's right. Because people watch us work and they go, uh, John, Mc we did a record with Martina McBride and John was here. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and John couldn't wait. He was here. It yeah. was... We had a really early downbeat, and I had to be here at like 5 o'clock in the morning to set up. And John was standing here when I got here. He was <laughs> like, I'm not missing a thing. I want to see the whole thing. <laughs> All right, fine. So we, it was a big band with strings. I mean, it was a pretty big thing. Yeah. And we got to the end of the day, and he just turned around, and he looked at me. He said, that was the most complicated nothing I've ever seen in my life. I thought, wow, that's a pretty good way to put it. Yeah. Like, and John is such a geared yeah, nut. That, yeah. Yeah. But... You know, it was it was move the mics around and get levels, and and we never say like, okay, can I hear the kick drum and boom, 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 or not? I mean, we might say, all right, can I hear the brass? Can I hear the have the rhythm section play? Let's get the headphones together, but it's very quick. Yeah, and within minutes, Al can have this whole orchestra kind of together, and I say minutes because we've been doing it for an hour beforehand when they're noodling around and stuff. Yeah, yeah. We're getting levels and all that. Um, so that that's what I my big takeaway from Al is is make it seamless and and that that it's okay to record very naturally yeah and that you don't have to use the eq and if there's a problem maybe don't use the eq just go move the mic a little bit yeah. or talk to the player um a lot of times the other thing he tries to do is get the band in as soon as possible so we'll do one maybe two takes and then it's come on in here and listen and they come in and listen, and you can see it, especially the really good pro musicians. You can see them, the wheels turning. And they listen to it, and they go, okay, yeah, we know what to do. And one of the guys will lean over and go, I'm going to turn my amp up a little bit, so watch the level. And another guy, goes, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm going to move in a little bit here. You know, and they just, they go back out, and it's like we fixed everything. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. all we did was play it back for them. Yeah. Um, but they heard what they had to do. Yeah. And, and because he makes it, tries to make it sound like a record, from the get-go, it's real. It's it's all there and balanced. So when they hear it, they go, "Okay, I, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get yeah. it." You know. Um, so it's that kind of stuff. Um, I spent the better part of a couple years, pretty much only doing projects with Al and Jeff Emmerich. Ah. So I worked a lot with Jeff in here in B, and I used to say it was like two totally different ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Because Jeff would EQ and compress everything yeah. brilliantly. And then I would go to Al and he would be doing nothing. And it was like back and forth. It would be fantastic results from both of them. Yeah. But it was the complete total. I used to, you know, we used to have stacks of 1176s in Fairchilds with Jeff. And I used to joke that when I hit play, it looked like the power went out because uh. all the meters <laughs> went down. Um, but that was really fun being able to, oh, yeah. to pop back and forth. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to assist for just about all the really big name guys. So, you know, I used to do a lot of records with Elliot Shiner when he used to mix here. So mm -hmm. I used to, you know, and I can, I can sometimes go through my head and go, oh yeah, I stole that from Elliot and I got yeah, that from yeah, Ed yeah. and I got that from Al and that from Jeff and that, you know, I had, you know, Glenn Johns taught me the Glenn Johns mic thing. He showed me how to do it. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, so I was like, okay, that's cool. Um, so I've been really lucky that I was able to to see those guys work and i still do it i you know i'll get put on a big movie date here or something like that as the assistant and i'm, I'm fine you know if i'm assisting frank wolf or sean murphy or bobby you know bobby fernand is one of those guys i'm still i'm still learning from them so to me spending two days with one of those guys doing an orchestra date 
it's not stepping back to me. Yeah. It's an opportunity to learn. Yeah, sure. So I don't mind being their Pro Tools operator. Yeah. Sure, I'll do that. And now we have a good time. We're all friends. So it's it's fun. And I get to, I'm still learning from what they're doing. And they're probably learning from me too. So, you know, we're all, yeah, especially yeah, yeah. Pro Tools, we're all learning from each What's that plugin? Yeah. How'd you do that? <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, besides from the personality aspect, and that's one thing I've noticed as well as, you know, everybody that does well in this business has a, a pretty good personality and they can get along with everybody and mm -hmm. they try real hard to do that. Is there a common thread between all of those guys that you just mentioned? They all care about the music and the project more than they, to them, that's more of a priority than what they're doing. Mm. It's not their record. Yeah. Um, they're, all of us are just a conduit for the artist to get the music out. Yeah. Um, and that's the way they, they look at it. Um, and they know what their job is. And that job may change depending on what you're doing. You know, if, if the engineer is also the producer, then his job is different. If he's not the producer, then um, if the session's going off the rails and you have to put it back on, they'll do that. But um, yeah, it's, you know, watching those guys work it's it's the attitude and the 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 um perspective of what they're supposed to be getting done um you'll never see one of those guys stop a session because of because they want to you know it might be hey i want to change something or something yeah. like, but they will very rarely stop a session to do that um i saw one guy stop a take in the middle and the whole room just kind of turned around like what yeah, yeah and he yeah. was like no no something's wrong I, I need to redo this and it was like dude that was not cool and that guy i didn't see him again for a long time and, you know I, I have an analogy to that actually i used to do a lot of video shoots as a, a producer and when we would get a crew in that was used to doing television especially news these guys were the same way they were running gun, they get the stuff up, done fast. And mm -hmm. If you got film guys in, those guys would be so persnickety. You'd be right. going, oh, wait, wait, stop everything. Wait, this the light. Lighting, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, come on, yeah. stop. Yeah, Very it's, similar thing. It's, and it's funny here because because here at Capitol, we do so much different kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. you could be doing a movie one day and a rock band the next day and a jazz band the next day and mixing Atmos one day and then we have a video shoot. And I mean, it all happens at once. And you know, if, if we're doing a film date or a union orchestra or something like that, and it's a 10 a.m. start, we all know that 10 a.m., bang, you know, we're going. At, at 10.05, take one is in. Yeah. And we're, you know, so we have that attitude. But then sometimes you'll get swung around on a, you know, suddenly you're doing a rock band for a month in B, and it's, sometimes it takes a couple of days to slow yourself down yeah. and realize that, <laughs> you know, what's the downbeat? Noon. And you're like, it's noon. I'm ready. Where is everybody? And, yeah. you know, the band's kind of trickling in. And, you know, yeah, it's noon, but it's the first day. It's and a we're different just going to kind of hang out the first day. Yeah. And so sometimes that pace can throw us sure. a bit. And, it you know, you'll see guys standing around going, what? Where? Where? And it's like, relax. Okay, hang on. I forgot. Record date. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, when that record date kicks up and it's time to go, we can go. Yeah. So it, it's it's being able to to navigate those kind of 
you know, different dynamics. So uh, what's your status here? You're not on staff, but yet you're treated sort of like I staff. I am on staff. Person. Oh, you are I'm on still staff. on staff at the Capitol. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just never left. Because when, when I was working with Al, we worked here 99% of the time. Oh, I see. Yeah. So I stayed on staff. Yeah. Why not? He didn't have to, I didn't have to worry about getting paid from him or me. When he wasn't working, I had a job, I yeah. had benefits and yeah, 401k right. and to be guaranteed work and all that. Um, and now, even though Al's not working quite as much as he used to, and I'm doing a lot of stuff on my own, I just stay on staff. It's, it hasn't been a problem to not be on staff. If I have to go someplace and do something else, they let me go. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's been, it's been a great a great thing i mean we're kind of the last bastion of the staff engineer yeah yeah um i have my own clients that come in and i get to do all kinds of different stuff it's a real shame too that that whole mentality has gone away yeah you know yeah. there's so few places like this anymore yeah it, it's funny because it, it was always you know when i started that was the system is you were a runner then you were an assistant and then you went independent yeah and yeah. and that independent thing was the goal and I guess in a way it still is, but I, it never, it hasn't slowed me down. Um, I mean, there have been times where maybe I was committed to a project here so I couldn't do something somewhere else, but, but I was working. It happens no matter what. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but then again, I don't really have slow periods. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when it's slow, I have work here. Yeah, sure. So, um, that's kind of been, you know, and again, they let me go do whatever I need to do. If I got it, I have a mix room at my house ah. um, that I kind of have by mistake. It just is kind of, you know, Pro Tools on the laptop, grew to a set of speaker yeah. headphones, and then it was a set of now it's a whole thing. And, and, but that room is for projects that will never come here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's just certain records that don't have a budget sure. for even for an inexpensive room at Capitol. Yeah. And, and I only use it for those projects. I'm very, diligent about making sure that that's not a conflict with my job here yeah. and actually we've used that studio here you know there's been times where a project needed to get like well look we need to get these mixes done and all the rooms are booked and i say well i'll just do it at home yeah. so i can go home and do it so it's worked out well for everybody and, yeah. and like now i'm in the middle of all this atmos mixing i haven't turned my studio on at home in months yeah. nothing has gone on at home so that's fine i want to talk about atmos in a second but mm -hmm. Tell me about the Academy Awards. Uh, those are always fun. Um, because it's a special setup here. Oh, yeah. It's very special. I think last year it was my 20th time doing it. So Tommy Vicari is the mixer, the main mixer, and has been outside of two or three years where it was somebody else. Tommy's always the mixer. It's our biggest setup of the year. They take the whole place. And it's great we have a whole day to set up which is a luxury wow <laughs> it's it's, yeah. it's definitely the biggest session we do i think last year we pulled something like 88 inputs into pro tools live and we do all of the traditionally they're here the week before the awards and we we pre-record what needs to be pre-recorded because there are some things that are pre-recorded on the show usually for logistic reasons mm -hmm. uh, you can't get a 60 piece band from point a to point b in the flash so so there's a few things that are pre-recorded. And then we pre-record or we, we record and rehearse all of the songs that will be played on the show. And the artists come in and they get to hear the arrangement and do a guide vocal and stuff like that. And, but 
usually that stuff gets played live, but we at least run it down here. And then if they don't like the, the key or the speed or the take the horns out or whatever, that happens here and not because it's usually arrangements that people are hearing for the first time. Mm, yeah. So we do all that here. And then, you know, there's some oddball stuff that goes on. So they're here the week before. And then traditionally they go to the stage and put the band in the pit with the truck and Tommy mixes the show from there. There were a number of years, and it hasn't happened in the last two years, but where the pit was not available to them. So we have fiber lines that come into the building and they have fiber lines that go into the Dolby Theater. So for a number of years, we were actually the orchestra pit. So the, the orchestra was here playing the show live, sending it, what, a half mile away down yeah, to yeah, Highland. Yeah. And on stage was the singer and... But they were any music you heard was actually being generated from here. And so we had tie lines back and forth and video lines back and forth and communication back and forth. And it was as if we were the pit and the truck that's normally there, but instead we were down here. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was really fun. I bet. Um, that was, it's funny because I thought for sure it was going to be chaos. And about... 10 minutes before the show started, the first thing we decided was, if you're not necessary, out. Yeah, sure. So we had other places in the building. We had the Studio B control room. and So we had, we had the show pumped into other rooms in the building for people that had to be around to see the show, but only the essential engineering staff was in the control room. So Tommy, me, Larry Ma, the Pro Tools operator, Chandler, our other engineer, uh, you know, the guys who read the scores. It, it was about six or eight of us in the control room and about five minutes before the show everything just got really calm and it was actually kind of cool and then the first day <laughs> everything's getting calm we're kicking people out and somebody popped their head in the door and went hey guys have a good show don't worry it's only like a billion people and walked out <laughs> thanks <laughs> like, um, but i really enjoy those shows i love it you know people are aren't you scared and I said, you know i'm not scared because we've been preparing for a week yeah there's adrenaline and there's, you know, you yeah. kind of, you know, when the downbeat hits, you know, you stop breathing for three and a half hours until the show's over. But, but I love it. I think it's fantastic. But we're ready. We have our cues. We yeah. have, we've done the show. By the time you get to the show, we've done it three, four times all the way through, yeah. even though they're constantly changing it. Um, so we know what our cues are. We know what we have to do. And, and it's just get through the show. Yeah. Um, and I think we did it three or four years in a row from here, and I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. So for me, that's that live stuff is the most fun. Well, to some degree, you're doing a lot of that anyway, especially like the orchestral stuff with Al and everything. It's real players doing mm -hmm. what they do. Right. And let's face it, that's... God, I wish there'd be more of that. It's so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's We'll be at, you know places, you know, you'd be at a NAMM show or AES show or somebody, and somebody's always like, you know, talking about... Well, who, you know, you don't need that. Who throws 80 channels of into record at one time? And I'm the guy in the back of the room. Yeah. No, we do it. <laughs> like, I do it. It's, you know, all our Pro Tools rigs are, you know, 72 inputs and 72 outputs at least, you yeah. know, if not more. And people are like, what do you do with all that? Like, we use it all the time. Yeah. yeah. You know, we have 72 input console. We run out of channels constantly. You know, it's, I love it. It's fun. It's yeah. really fun. I mean, we still have big analog consoles because we need them. Yeah, sure. You, know, you can't do that in the box. Yeah, right, right, right. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, you need three or four people 
to manage that kind of a session. Sure. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really fun. You know. Let's go to Atmos for a second. You mixed five one before, and so you have a fair amount of experience with it. And then comes Atmos. Mm-hmm. How is your approach different? Initially, I didn't really know how it was going to be different, and I figured it was going to be about the same. But I have a little, a few more speaker, a few more speakers in here. We have twenty speakers. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, and I very quickly, once they gave me the tools, so to backtrack a little bit, we were we were told to build a Dolby Atmos room, and there's there's all kinds of deals with record companies and Dolby and other places. So, but the bottom line is, we were told we're going to mix music only in Atmos. So we're going to build this Atmos room. So we built the Atmos room. Um, you know, Dolby was always here with us, helping us out, and. At the time, Nate Kunkel was actually working for Dolby, so he was here a lot. He he was really influential in building this room. And then I had a record to mix. There was it, this was there was a record. It was an REM record actually. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it ended up coming out, but it was this is the record we're gonna. There's a box set coming out. And we got to mix this record. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna let you mix for a couple weeks, and then we'll bring in Scott Litt, the producer, and the band, and you guys can tweak it from there or whatever. But we're gonna give you two weeks to figure this out and do it yourself. Okay, great. And so Nate was here for a couple days and they kind of showed me the tools. And as they were showing me the tools and how this object-based mixing works, I realized very quickly that this was a totally different thing than 5.1. Yeah. Where in 5.1 you had speakers, left, center, right, rears. Here you don't really, you never aim anything at a speaker. You just take the object and put it where you want it and the system figures out how to get it there. Mm. So you don't have to worry about exactly where the speakers are. The system has already worried about that. You just take the little ball and say, I want it over here, and it figures out how to get it there. And when you go to another room, it figures out how to get it there in that room. And when you go to the other room, it goes, okay, well, in, you know, in this room I have 20 speakers, in that room I have 50 speakers, so I do it differently. In that other room I have 10 speakers, so I do it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and we have full range speakers all the way around. So you're not limited thinking, oh, well, in the backs, you're just going to have these little speakers in there. So we never really put anything important back there. Yeah. Now we put important stuff wherever we want. Yeah. Um, so I very re- very quickly realized that this was a different animal, and it was really fun. And the height channels are amazing. Yeah, once, yeah. You, once you get into them, it's, it's a way, you know, not just for stuff coming from above your head, but to lift stuff off, off the walls and bring it in. Um, but it was fun. So I started mixing this record. And you know, just kind of poking around with it and figuring out how to move stuff and where to put stuff and what felt right and making a lot of mistakes along the way. And Nate would come in in the mornings just to make sure this, because we were still working out the system too, like there's a buzz here and a, you know, stuff like that. So he would come in in the morning and we'd have coffee and, you know, hi, how you doing? Great. I said, Nate, you know, I had this thing yesterday. I was trying to get this vocal to do this thing. And, you know, how do people deal with that? And he looked at me and he'd go, Nobody's ever done it before, man. You're just going to have to make it up. <laughs> so, um, so I realized I just had to make it up. Yeah. So it was really fun. I was just making stuff up. Um, and I think we got to a pretty good place. Consequently, when, when the band and Scott came in to listen, they obviously had a different conceptual idea than I had because part of this is very conceptual too. Mm-hmm. It, it's up to the mixer to decide where stuff is going to go and how big you're going to get and how crazy and do you want 
big drums everywhere or little drums does the vocal stay in the front and not the so so there are a lot of creative decisions that way and it was very obvious that they had a different idea than I did so my solution was this is not my record this is your record yeah you guys should do this we'll be here to help you but you tell us where you want so so between me and Nick one of our other engineers it was I I could it's not my record it's there. Just take everything I did and throw it away if you want to and start over. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so they ended up doing something much different than I was doing, which was great. It, it came out fantastic. Um, but that was how we started this whole thing. Yeah. Um, then we just started mixing stuff and showing it off to people. And most of it was just to show to people and conceptually and concept and is this going to work and this is what we want to do. Um, and it was really fun. I would... Sometimes they would give us like, hey, we want you to mix a couple of these tracks. And sometimes I could just say like, wow, we just did this great record. I'm going to mix two of these. Oh, yeah, do that. Okay, that's fun. You know, I just did this. I did this hip hop record, you know, with an orchestra. Yeah, do that. That'll be fun. You know, so whatever. So they were giving us stuff and I was doing stuff. And, um, and, and over the course of a couple of years, I think we got pretty good at it. Um, the stuff you played me was fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's it's really fun. It's it's immersive. It's yeah, it it's is. really like I said. If if I do it right, the speakers go away. Yeah. You don't notice where they are or that the speakers are even there. Yeah. Um, and now we have an initiative at Universal where we're mixing lots of songs. <clears throat> um, something is coming. It, it I've been told by the end of the year, yeah. all this stuff will be available to people. Um, and the manufacturers are starting to catch up. Um, so, you know, we've been privy to some speaker systems that will be in the next year or two that that are really quite amazing. Yeah. Um, there's stuff out there now. You can stream movies in Atmos now yeah, on sure. Netflix yeah. and Amazon and, and Apple. Um, so so the, the infrastructure, it's interesting. This time around, I know it's a new format and everybody goes, oh, surround, here we go again with the thing. But this time, I think we're getting the infrastructure in place before the consumer gets it yeah, yeah so maybe we can control it a little bit more and make it work first and then you know and then give the consumer something that already works which will be nice yeah yeah i mean we can get into a long discussion on why yeah, exactly surround didn't work but right. uh but now yeah, we have stuff different. smart speakers wireless technology sure. all that kind of stuff you don't have to run cables through your house sure it's a scalable system. So, you know, in 5.1, if your speakers weren't exactly in the right spot, your mix didn't really work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a, cal it needs to be right, but it, there's a lot of leeway yeah. in what you can do with it. Yeah. So it's it's been really fun. And, you know, sometimes we make stuff fly around the room if it's appropriate. And yeah. other times, you know, I've played you some stuff earlier where it's just a big orchestra wrapping around you. It was and, beautiful. Yeah. And it feels like you're sitting in the middle of the orchestra. Yeah. I always have a concept, especially if I'm doing like um, stuff with real music, like live musicians. Yeah. If it's more pop stuff, synthesized stuff, then you can play stuff around the room and it, it kind of make you know, you can, you have beeps and bops and stuff going on. But if it's an orchestral piece or a big band piece, or I always say, okay, what's the concept here for my mix? So like in the one I played you, it was okay, you're going to be sitting right in front of the conductor. So the conductor's here. This is Abbey Road, Studio One. Here's a conductor, and you have a chair that's two feet in front of the conductor, yeah. and this orchestra is going to wrap around you like that. Maybe take some liberties with a couple things here and there. And then this voice is going to come out and just be as big as a house. Yeah. Um, I did a big band record where I actually hung microphones for the Atmos, 
And same kind of thing. All right, you're going to be sitting in front of the conductor. So, you know, the saxes are over here and the trumpets are over there and the percussion's back there. And, and that's the way it feels in the room. Um, again, other times, all bets are off and there's car chases running around the room and yeah, people, yeah. you know, chasing stuff. And it's really, it's really fun. Really it's fun to do. Cool. I, I can't wait for people to hear this. Yeah, yeah. We, we try to say, people say, explain Atmos. And it's really hard. You can't explain it. And I say, no, sit down right here. And I hit the space bar. And uh, by the time the chorus hits, they go, yep, I get it. Yeah, cool. in 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. You get it. We yeah. usually start with the Rocket Man track because yeah. it starts small and then gets big. And yeah. by the time the chorus comes in, everybody goes, oh, yep, that's it. Yeah. There was one lady here. She literally burst into tears mm. when the chorus hit. And it hits you from the sides and all the way around. Yeah. And it was just so emotional. And it's funny, even a track like that, even though it's bigger and spread out, in a weird way, it's more intimate. And you actually get drawn into the vocal a little bit more. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Funny you should mention that, but it does feel it, like It's that. happened on a lot of different songs like that, where even though it's, it's big, it's... Because yeah. you can focus stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the vocal's right there in front of you. Yeah. And, and it's kind of moved in a little bit, almost closer to you, so... So you really feel like that person is right there. That's it's pretty impressive, that's yeah. for sure. Last question. Best piece of business advice that you learned? <laughs> How did I know this question was coming? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, best piece of business advice, I think it came from Ed Cherney, actually. Ah. He said, treat it as a business. Yeah. That, that keep track of your schedule and keep track of your books and pay your taxes and, you know, have... The deal up front, whatever the deal is, just don't, it's not, even though it feels like we're playing in here all the time, that there is a business side of it yeah. and keep that straight and, and it'll be much easier. And I've kind of always lived by that. I may not have always done it right, <laughs> but. It's the trying that, that's yeah, important. It's that. Yeah. And then, you know, I think Andrew Sheps said it the best in the control room. Just don't be a dick. <laughs> Truer <laughs> words have never been spoken. It right. sums it up pretty well. <laughs> you can find out more about Steve at stevegenowick.com. That's Steve Genowick, all one word, G-E-N-E-W-I-C.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyownercircle.com where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.